Um, so let me introduce the series to you before Tim comes up. Uh, we are in the middle of our summer series called uh, David and Bono, When the Word Sings. Um, and the idea was that John Hattie found all of these clips of Bono from U2 uh, talking about the impact the Psalms has had on his life. And in particularly, he was talking to a guy uh, who had wrote uh, or had translated um, a Bible, the Bible, into what we know as the message. The message was written with kind of uh, relevant language um, and is a very cool read if you've never read it helps you kind of rethink some of the things that are in there. Uh, and Bono talked about the impact the message version of the Bible had on him. His name was Eugene Peterson. And so the two of them met and talked, and it was uh, facilitated by Fuller um, Seminary. And so we've been showing kind of clip after clip of, of the discussion that they've had. You know, I've, I tried to get to the place where I'm not singing the song, you know, because that's a chore. Mm. I try to get to the place where the song is singing me. Mm. And when I'm there, it's effortless and I'm present. And I try to be useful. We have a hunch that God isn't not that interested in advertising and uh, I might be wrong and but but it's art rather than advertising that the creator mm. of the universe is impressed by mm -hmm. and and so very careful for the church doesn't be going around advertising for God yeah because you know the creation screams God's name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to stick a sign on every tree. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. Just don't. We agree. No, but that's not a Christian tree then. <laughs> Doesn't have a sign on it. That sign is not on the tree. So it's not a Christian tree. That's not a Christian song. That is. You, you know, this is this is really, really got to stop. Yeah. You've got to stop. I want to hear the song about the breakdown in your marriage. I want to hear songs of justice. I want to hear rage at injustice. Mm -hmm. Then I want to hear a song so good that it makes people uh, want to do something about the subject. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. You know, Bono talks about um, honesty in the Psalms, and that's one of the biggest things, and he talks about that in, in several different of the, the clips, but the, the honesty that we see in the Psalms, and that's, um, on some level, that's why I'm a Christian today, because of that honesty, because that David models this idea that we can come to God with everything we are. We're so good at hiding those things from God, because we don't feel like he'll accept us, or we don't think we can, or it's not respectful, or and David comes, and some of the stuff he says to God is, is crazy. It's I mean, none of us would ever dare to say that stuff, but we should. And the reason I'm a Christian is because the Bible is not, it's not a fairy tale. It's not completely detached from life. And on the other hand, it's not, it doesn't ignore the hard stuff in life either. It recognizes them and it pushes us to Christ. So I want to start off this morning with a story. Uh, what is the best thing, what is the best gift you've ever been given? 
Think about that. What's the best gift you've ever been given? For me, I, I've, give, I've been given several gifts um, that are really meaningful throughout my lifetime. But the one that I'm thinking of today it was about 15 years ago, and I had been playing guitar for a little while. You know, started to think that I was something. And I decided it was time to buy a Taylor. And if you don't know what a Taylor is, it's a much nicer model of guitar than I had at the time. <laughs> and uh, so I started strategizing about how to save up for that and where I should buy it. I realized, I was living in France at the time, realized that it was cheaper to get it here in the States. So then I was like, well, when's the next time I'm going to be back in the States? How am I going to get it? And a buddy of mine who played piano on the worship team said, well, I go back all the time. Why don't I just buy it and bring it back for you? I was like, that's great. And so a couple weeks later, he knocked on my door and had the guitar in the case. And it was like, oh, this is amazing. And he looked at me and he goes, you don't owe me anything. Because I had planned on paying him back. And I was just blown away. And I, you know, sometimes it takes you a second to kind of click in. And it was like, what? What do you mean I don't owe you anything? And yeah, and he said, I believe in what God's do- using you through music. I believe in your worship ministry. This is an investment into all of that. And, so, and I still play that guitar today, 15 years later. And that has been a huge blessing for me. Um, and you're going to start wondering where the story is going in a second because there's more. And we'll get there, but bear with me for a second. A couple months later, it's Christmas, and we're putting on this uh, Christmas kind of outreach, community outreach thing with several other groups. And so people from our church, people from different churches are coming, and they've prepared something. And so our group did our stuff, and the next group forgot their guitar. And so the guy came up and said, well, can, can, I, can I borrow your guitar? And I said, and this, you know, the, the spirit of Christian charity and... Christmas generosity, I said, of course you can borrow my brand new, really nice free guitar. <laughs> Don't break it. And, uh, and so they got up, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of on pins and needles in my seat. And, Don't scratch it. Don't be nice to it. It's, it's my baby. And uh, so they did their thing, and they, they sang their song, and everyone, everything went according to plan, and they started to come down. The guy put the guitar back on the, on the stand, and as he turned to go, the guitar slipped off the stand and fell down. And I'm sitting in my seat, my knuckles are white, and I'm like, oh, it was everything I could do to hold myself back and not run up there and punch his lights out. It was like, it's my guitar. And, uh, and he quickly, you know, he picked it up, inspected it, put it back on there, and, and I, you know, a few minutes later, I went up and it was fine. But uh, right as, as I was sitting there, and in that moment, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm cursing under my breath, and this is a church, and this is... I'm, and, and I, I was not Christian in that moment. I was not following God, and I know that's not right, but it was just, it was, I was beyond myself. But this woman, American couple who was sitting right behind me, just started coming to our church, taps me in that moment and goes, it's just a guitar. It's okay. <laughs> and I turned and I looked at her, and I don't think I've ever given someone a look like that before or since then, but I was absolutely livid absolutely livid. And I looked at her and I said, <laughs> walked out, grabbed my guitar and left and I, I, I was... And uh, she came up to me the next Sunday and she said, well, she apologized for being insensitive and said, I, you know, I, I just, I, you know, it was your new guitar. And she shared with me that they, when they still lived in the States, that they had, her and her husband, had had their house burned down. Twice. 
And she said, you know, that brought us to this place of crisis where we have a different, you know, I forget sometimes that I have a different relationship with my stuff than other people do. You know, she'd watched that house burn out, a place of memories, that place of all of your belongings, your personal things, safety, and you watch it burn down twice. And I, and I realized as I, you know, as I look back on that, that they had been brought to a place of clarity where they really had to ask themselves deep questions about what, what am I living for? What's good in life? What has value? What, what do I want to really invest in? And so the psalm that we're going to talk about today, Psalm 34, was written by David, as a lot of the other songs, psalms, songs, psalms, were written by him. And he's writing from this place of just brokenness, of this place where he has this clarity and this ability to suddenly see what really matters in life. And he's, he's really writing about the good life. What is the good life? I mean, if you, and that's relevant for us too, because unless, you've not, unless you don't watch TV or you don't drive down the highway and see the billboards, everyone's talking about it, everyone's trying to tell you what it is, and they're all trying to sell it to you, if you've watched a beer or a car commercial recently. So this is relevant for us. What is the good life? And David has this very simple answer. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is good. Let me just give you a quick backstory on David so you can understand how he got to this place of clarity. Um, if you didn't know, he was the youngest of, I think, eight brothers. That could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. A lot of brothers. He was the youngest. He was a shepherd. Shepherd is like the lowest of low. He had no future. He had no, it was just, he didn't have a whole lot to look forward to. And so Samuel comes, the prophet, and he anoints him as the next king of Israel. And all of a sudden, he's got this incredible prophecy spoken over him. He's got, he's got a future. And then a little while after that, he defeats Goliath. And because of that, he ends up in the service of King Saul. And as, as he joins the ranks of the soldiers, he begins to set, him aside, set himself apart in battle. And he becomes renowned as a warrior. And he is he's the most famous person in Israel. He's feared by their sworn enemies, the Philistines, He's best friends with the king's son. He's married to the king's daughter. I mean, and he's going to be the future king of Israel. He's on an upward trajectory. He's where we all want to be. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the bottom drops out. Because the king gets jealous of his fame, of his celebrity. Starts, trying, starts persecuting. Starts trying to kill him. Tries to pin him to the wall with a spear when he's playing music. I feel a little bit concerned there. <laughs> Don't try and pin me to the wall. Tries, sends assassins to his house and tries to kill him and he escapes out the back window. And so finally, the king's son tells David, you got to leave. My dad hates you. He's going to try and kill you. you got to leave. So David flees and he flees to a city called Nob. And it's a, it's a city of priests. And so the priests end up helping David. And because they help David, after David leaves, Saul is chasing David and he comes and he actually slaughters all of the priests. So David continues running, and he runs to the Philistines, to the city of Gath, which is where Goliath was from, hoping in his desperation that maybe they wouldn't recognize him, maybe he could find refuge there. But they recognize him, and they capture him. And he only escapes because the story says that he, he pretended he was crazy. He let spit run down, into, run down into his beard, and he starts making marks on walls, on the city gates. And so they go, the king actually says, I don't need any more crazy people. Let this guy go. And so he escapes into this cave, the cave of Abdullam, where he's, he's, he's lost everything. He's hiding out. He's in the middle of nowhere. 
And he's hiding out. And that's where he writes this psalm from, this psalm that pushes us and says, hey, the good life is the one that seeks God wholeheartedly. It's the only one that will ultimately be good even when it's bad. If you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it, it says something similar. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so as he, as he goes through this psalm that revolves around this idea of what is the good life, he, he goes through models, he suggests for us four, four habits, four practices that we should cultivate in our lives. There's a guy called uh, Charles Duhigg. It's a great last name, Duhigg. Wrote a book called The Power of Habit a couple years ago. And he, his premise was that there are certain habits in your life that you should cultivate, and he called them keystone habits that have this trickle-down effect that make you more effective in every area of your life. And if you can cultivate those, you can become more effective as a person. And that's what David's kind of saying to us today. He's, he's saying, here's four things four habits you should cultivate, spiritual habits, that not, it's not going to let you manipulate God so you can get out of him, get what you want out of him, but it's going to bring you closer to, you, to him in your relationship with him. So here's the first thing. Let's read through it together. David starts off, right, imagine him sitting in the wilderness in this cave by himself, and here's how he starts. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. David starts with worship. He starts with praise and thanksgiving to God. But it's not a natural thing for him. This isn't a, he wakes up and first thing he does is sing God's praises. It's a choice. If you look at his language, he says, I will bless the Lord. His praise shall be in my mouth. It's the language of choice. He's decided, he's determined that he's going to persevere in his worship of God regardless of his circumstances. It's a choice. And so worship in in all of Scripture, let's do a little big picture, little picture, because big picture in all of what Scripture is talking about as far as worship is different than what David is talking about right here. See, in, in Scripture, worship is this idea of an all-encompassing, holistic life posture towards God or, or towards something else. Every moment of your life, you are glorifying, you're giving glory to something by, your, by what you do, by what you say, by what you think. There's no neutral position which is a little uncomfortable for me as an idea. There's no neutral position. You can't just sit down in front of the TV and go, okay, I'm not going to worship God now. I'm not going to worship anything. You're always worshiping something. And so David says that that life posture, there should be times, moments, when we express that life posture, when we express that, or the, 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 the direction of our life, wherever we're pointing towards, there should be moments when we express that verbally, in song, maybe you write it down. There should be moments when we do that. So how do you learn to do it? Right, because we said it's not, it's, not a, it's not a natural thing, it's not a, a reflex. Our reflex is to focus on ourselves, not on God. It's a learnt thing. So as I was thinking about what, how do you actually learn that, I started thinking about, well, how I learned to talk to, 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 to praise my wife, to tell her how I felt about her. 
And I remember as, you know, we, we were dating and then we got engaged. And then at some point we started doing premarital counseling. And the, the stuff we were going through, they, they had, the, I remember the one question they, they had us ask, try to answer for each other was, what is it about your spouse that you admire? What draws you to your future spouse? And I remember not having very good answers. <laughs> and kind of going, um, she's got really good stuff to say, and I don't have anything good to say. And I said some, you know, I came up with something. But, and it wasn't that I didn't know why I loved her. It was that I hadn't learned to express it. I hadn't figured out how, or the words that went with the feeling. And so after that, I remember going out and very, very, purposefully trying to watch her and figure out what it was about her that I really loved, that really drove me. And then I got a little bit braver, and I I actually tried to start practicing those things. And so I'd say things like, you're such a good cook, I really love you. And you ladies, you have such a way of flipping a perspective on us guys. (laughs) That's just not fair. And so she would go, oh, and so when I don't cook, you don't love me. And I'm going, no, that's not what I was trying to say. Dig, dig, dig. And uh, it still have, I still haven't learned a lesson. I did it last week. I still fall into those little traps. Not that they're purposeful. Don't we get in trouble up here. But we, we need to learn how to express it. You have to spend time thinking about God because it's important to express what do you actually feel towards him, about him? What has he done for you? What is your experience with him? Can you actually tell him about that? Because it's a relationship. It's not, it's not a set of rules. It's not a principles that you can apply to manipulate God. It's a relationship. And he has told you how he feels about you. And the problem that I find is that you ladies are so much better at this than we are. Because you just naturally express feelings better than we males do. And I realize that I have the same problem with God that I have at home with my wife and my kids. That it's hard for me to, I think it a lot, but I don't always verbalize it. And there's something powerful about writing it down, saying it, singing it. My buddy Steve, who's not here, he's here first service, he's our youth pastor, he actually had a, he said something a couple years ago about worship that really kind of helped me understand this, this idea and how to live it out. Because, because David says, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And I, I read that and I go, that sounds exhausting. I don't think I can ever live up to that. All times, continually, like what is that? It's impossible, Right? I mean, is there anyone here who actually spends... I mean, you're not doing it right now, so... And so Steve talked about this idea of binging. How many of you have ever binge-watched a TV show? Guilty, 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 guilty. Right? Watching a show, episode back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back ad nauseum. And the funny thing when you do that, if you, and maybe you haven't noticed this, and now you'll start noticing it, is that when you go back into your real life, all of a sudden you start noticing all this other stuff from the show, everything you see in your life reminds you of characters and plot twists and story arcs, and you're immersed in that show even though you're back in your life. And that's true of other, 
of other areas of life too, right? I'm like, I'm a musician and I spend a lot of time thinking about and studying and playing music. And so now a lot of times I'm walking down the street and I'll hear something or see something or a combination of both and I'm, I'm starting to hear melodies and intervals and rhythms and I'll start drumming something on my chest and Renska will be like, what are you doing? But, it, you know, it, it's, you're immersed in it. And that's what, that's what David's saying. He's choosing to be immersed in the things of God so that even when you're not thinking about him, you're thinking about him. You're being reminded of him. Because if you want to tell him what you feel about him, you actually have to have something to say, right? And so you have to spend time with him and be immersed in those things. And it really doesn't matter where on some level you do it, and hopefully, where are my elders at? Hopefully it doesn't get me fired. You're supposed to laugh, because I don't want to get fired. That's a bad thing. It doesn't matter where you do it. If you came to me and said, Tim, I don't like singing in worship on Sunday morning. I just, I actually come late because I want to miss it. I would say, that's okay. It's way more important for me, for you, that you figure out where you can do that. Maybe it's on a walk. Maybe it's in the shower. Maybe it's, Maybe it is here on Sunday morning, but you need to find that time, that place, that space in between. You need to create space for that so that you actually have time to tell him and think about him and express that to him. And just to come back to the corporate worship thing, there is, you know, David does say, magnify the Lord with me. Exalt his name together. There is something so important about the time we spend here right now and there's so many reasons why you should come to worship, why you should come to the sermon, why you should come to church and be here in community. The one that's on my heart this morning for, for us is that so many people, and maybe you're that person this morning, so many of us come here and depend on the community and the fellowship and the encouragement and the teaching we get here to make it through another week. And when you show up, you're participating in that encouragement. That's part of being a family is that we show up for stuff together. And the person sitting next to you right now, in their heads, might be going, yep, that's me. And you showed up, and you're encouraging them. So show up. It's so easy to do, guys. So when was the last time that you took time, that you made time to think about God, to reflect on who he is, what he's done for you, and then have a go at telling him about it and expressing that to him. Here's the second thing he says. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So here's the second thing. We've got to learn how to trust God with our fear. Got to learn how to trust God with our fear. Commit those things to him and leave them with him. Some of you know that when Renska and I first moved here four, four years ago, four years ago, um, it was a pretty rocky year for us because she was in France waiting on her green card, pregnant with Tice. I was here trying to start a new life and find an apartment and get insurance and all the crazy administrative stuff you have to do, set up. And I remember just our conversations back then were, fe- were filled with fear. Fear that she wouldn't get a green card. Fear of something going wrong with the baby. Fear of, of, of not seeing each other enough. Fear of starting a new life here. Fear of so much fear. 
And when I think about trusting God in our fear, so often I think of not making fear-based decisions. And that's bad. We shouldn't do that. That never ends well. But as I was reading this psalm, I realized that there's another kind of fear, and it's the fear that's around the decision-making times, in between, before you make a decision, after you make a decision. And maybe this morning you're somebody who, who's going, who's, you're stuck. There's no decision you can make to get out of where you're, wherever you're at. And you're going, how long, Lord? How long until you change something? And in that waiting, there can be so much stress and anxiety wrapped up in that. We have to trust God with that. But maybe you're somebody who has made a decision. Maybe you've chosen to make the hard choice and obey him. And now it's like, okay, I, now I'm living with the fallout of all that, and I'm trying to figure out how to, nothing hasn't, nothing's happened yet. Maybe you're waiting for the decisions to take effect, but you're still waiting. You can trust God in that too. You can trust him in that. And David pulls out here something that's really important about God. We're going to do a little bit of audience participation. Hopefully it'll be better than first service because my sound guys had to come to my rescue. And we're going to jump away from the text, but don't stick with me because it it has a bearing on what we're talking about. If I'd ask you, what is God's most important characteristic? Somebody shout some stuff out. What's his most important characteristic? Love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, holiness. Okay. Those are all super important. Here's the problem. There's one characteristic that has to come before all of those things or you never actually experienced all the other stuff we talked about. And David references it because he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. It's that God is a relational God. He's a person. That's his most important characteristic because if you can't know him, you can't know who he is. And David says, I sought the Lord. He answered me. I cried out to him and he heard my cry and delivered me from all my fears. Maybe that's for you this morning. Maybe you need to know that he hears you. He sees you. Keep calling out to him. Psalm 103 says it like this. This is one of my favorite verses. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows you. He knows you. He sees you. He knows where you're at. He knows your struggles. He knows you're waiting. He knows you're sick and tired of it. He knows. And we have to run to him. We have to make that choice. That's what David's, he's saying, make the choice. Make the choice to run there. Don't run somewhere else. Because the problem with where you run is that it's a really indicator of what you actually serve and trust and worship. And that worship thing, we did that first because, and David does it first because everything else hinges on it. And I realized for myself, you know, I I try and read these honestly, these Psalms, and and try and ask, what's God teaching me out of this? And you know, one of the things that came back to me and that I've struggled with and I, I remembered is that I don't run to God first. A couple of years ago, I realized that I actually, my tendency, I run to TV. <laughs> it's a really good story. Immerse myself in it. Forget my issues for a while. Forget life. Detach from reality. I don't know what your thing is, but, you know, maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's TV. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Now, drugs are inherently bad, Alcohol can be bad. 
But those other things aren't inherently bad in and of, them, in and of themselves, but they all become bad when we run to them when we should be running to God. And he's worthy of your trust. You can run to him. Where do you run in times of trouble? I just, I wrote this question on here. You know, what, what area of your life is there paralysis from fear? Where are you paralyzed from fear? You need to commit those things to God. Here's the second thing, or third thing. David talks about. He says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So the third thing is this obey his precepts, obey them because they're good. And if you want the good life, Walk in his ways. They're good. He, he, made the whole, he made this whole place. He designed everything how it would work. And obedience is a trust issue, ultimately. It's about trust. It's the, it's the outward expression of how much you trust God. If you trust him, obedience will be a natural outcome. And as I was reading those, the second half of that, you know, David says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And I'm just thinking of David again, and of his story, and, his, and this whole saga of running away from, from Saul. And if you remember, I told you that when he started to flee Israel, he went to the city of Nob first. And there's a city of priests, and the priests helped him, and because they helped him, they, they were all killed by Saul. What I didn't tell you is that the reason the priest helped David is because he lied to them. See, he got there, and Ahimelech, the head priest, came out, and he was afraid. It says he trembled when he saw David. And he said, why are you here? Why is there no one with you? And David said, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. It's, it's all good. Saul and I were good. And so they helped him. Yeah, I gotta change that. That's my job. <laughs> so the priests helped him, and then as David left, Saul came in and slaughtered all the priests. Now, David wasn't responsible for Saul's actions and the actions of Doeg the Edomite. That's the guy who actually did the killing. But he's, I could see him writing these words and going, man, now I have this guilt. I have this weight that I'm carrying with me because I trusted myself and I didn't trust God enough to follow his commands, to not lie when he said, hey, don't lie. And he, said, and he comes to us as a father to his children going, guys, it's not worth it. I know at the time it may seem inconvenient. I know at the time that it's frustrating. I know that it's not the easy choice, that there's a really obvious choice right here, but he's going, guys, the, it's not worth it. Because your relationship with God is going to suffer. All of a sudden you're going to stop praying and you're going to stop coming to church and you're going to avoid your Christian friends, that one Christian friend who's always asking you, how are you doing? Because it's uncomfortable. Obedience is about trust. And again, as I think about my own life, there's two really big convictions that I have a lot of times that I, I, I see when I, when I start going down the road of not listening to God. The first is that, well, I think that disobedience is actually going to make me happier than obedience. And the second is that I really don't think God is going to come through for me in the time frame I want him to come through in. 
And so I justify that and I rationalize it and I make myself feel okay. You know, and I say things like, well, God really doesn't want to inconvenience me that much. I mean, he can't really expect me to do this. I mean, if you do this in our culture, in our society today, you'll never get ahead. And at least I didn't do what this other person did. Comparison, it's always the fallback. Makes us feel better. If you're trying to figure out how to trust God, start with obedience. Start there. Start working that out. A whole lot of stuff flows out of obedience. Where do you need to stop playing games with God? If you're playing games with him, where do you need to stop? And seek him and seek what he wants you to do in a situation. Here's the fourth fourth habit. David says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This one isn't quite as straightforward as the other ones, but what I think he's trying to tell us here is, guys, seek after God wholeheartedly. Seek him wholeheartedly. And he doesn't come out in a straightforward way and say, woohoo. Seek God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He comes at it, he makes it all about God. He talks about who God is in relationship to two different groups of people. Maybe you noticed that as I was reading it. And if you spend any time in scripture, you've, you've come across this. He talks about the righteous and the wicked and who God is in relationship to them. His face is toward the righteous and he destroys the wicked. James chapter 4 talks about that, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jeremiah 17 is a little more explicit. He says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And that language is really kind of black and white. It's kind of brutal and a little blunt, and I don't think I like it most of the time. I like, I like gray. Gray's nice. Because in gray, there's wiggle room. And I can kind of wiggle out of its grip. And I can have conversations with myself about, well, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, and eh, I'm doing okay. And if I'm really honest, what I'm really trying to avoid is that knot in the pit of my stomach that's trying to get me to ask myself, well, am I the righteous or am I the wicked? Am I trusting God or am I trusting man? And that's really, if I'm honest, I don't like that language because it's convicting to me. Because the Holy Spirit's there going, where do you stand? Are you over there or are you over here? It's not about me looking at anybody else going, well, that person's in, that person's out. It's about you and the Holy Spirit. Don't, Don't ignore that. It's supposed to do that. That's the goal. David knows how good we are at wiggling out of stuff, at ignoring the Holy Spirit's prompting. Don't ignore that. That's God trying to get your attention. Let it do its work. Because David knows, and we know, that we are so good at serving God half-heartedly instead of wholeheartedly. We're really good at saying, well, God, you can have all of this, all of this over here, but 
This thing right here, this is mine. It's all mine. God doesn't get any of this. I don't know what this is for you. Maybe it is that time you spend, you sit down in front of this TV and say, I'm going to watch what I want to watch. I don't care. Maybe it's a relationship that you is unhealthy. Maybe it's some time during the week when you go, this is my time. I don't know what that is for you, but the problem with that point of view is that that's based on the idea that we are actually compartmentalized human beings, but we're not. It's all one big integrated mess. And so when one area suffers and turns away from God, guess what happens with all the other stuff? It suffers too. It suffers too. There's only one way to achieve the good life. It's to seek God wholeheartedly. To seek Him with all your heart. And I think so often, what, the reason that we don't, I know the reason that I don't, is that I don't actually hold to the idea that God is the only, the supreme good. He's the only thing that's really good. What I actually think is, well, God's, okay, maybe God is the, the supreme good, but there's some other good things too. And those aren't as good, but they're so much easier to get. Seeking after God wholeheartedly, so, it asks so much of me. Gosh, it asks everything of me. And so we settle for the stuff that's good but not as good, and we chase after those things, money and career and relationships or whatever, whatever that is for you. And we, maybe we add a little God in there as well. But the problem, and what the psalmist says, is that all of those things take you to direction, to destruction. They lead to destruction. They don't lead anywhere. They're all based on your circumstances going well and your own self-effort. And the problem with that is that circumstances change and efforts fail. God is the only one who is unchanging, who is always faithful, who always fulfills his promises. That's why the good life with God will always be good even when it's bad. Always. So where are the areas in your life you are half-heartedly seeking God? Where are the areas that you said, this is mine? What are the areas that you need to let him back into? I pulled out all the language that David uses about how God interacts with the righteous. I want to read that to you real quick. David says, His eyes are towards them, the righteous. He hears their cry. He hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. He is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He delivers them out of all their afflictions. He keeps all their bones and not one of them is broken. He redeems their lives. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. I read that and my reaction is, I want that. Don't you want it? Don't you want to taste his closeness? Don't you want him to be near to you when you're brokenhearted and comfort you when you're crushed in spirit? That's what that language is is meant to do. It's meant to go, don't you want it? You can almost taste it, you want it so bad. Seek after him. It's worth 
It's worth giving everything you have to chase after him. As the band comes up, and hopefully they'll hear me out there, um, I want to tell you a story that has impacted me um, in my understanding of what, what the good life looks like and all of these traps and these trying to cultivate these four habits. Back in 1967, there was a young woman whose name was Johnny. She was 17 years old. Some of you might know her name. Her name is Johnny Erickson, now Johnny Erickson Tata. And she was out for a normal day, summer day at the lake. She dove off and broke her neck. And they took her to the hospital. She survived. And uh, when she's at the hospital, they informed her that she was paralyzed from the neck down, a quadriplegic. She was going to be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And for her, in that moment, there was no silver lining. There's no, there's no bright spot. And so, in complete despair, she, she began begging her, her friends and her family to help her commit suicide. And somehow, through a series of events, through some very faithful friends, God pulled her out of that and turned her life around and gave her a sense of purpose, gave her a hope. But just because she was following God and seeking him with all her heart didn't mean that life was going to be easy. And so, in the years that followed, she began to experience chronic pain, which if you know anything about medical stuff, when you're a paraplegic, you shouldn't have that. It's not a normal thing. And then in addition to that, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a mastectomy. And I, she would probably tell you that all of that physical suffering actually poured over into every area of her life because she got married, but they couldn't have children. So it affected her marriage, it affected friendships, career. And so a couple of years ago, in an interview, someone asked her the question, if you could go back and not dive off of that dock in the middle of that lake, would you do it and change your life forever? And here's what she said, and I want you to, don't miss this, because this is the heart of the good life. This is the heart of seeking Christ wholeheartedly. This is the heart of this Psalm 34. She said, Christ has beckoned me into the inner sanctum of his fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I wouldn't trade places with anybody in the world to be this close to Jesus. She's still alive today. She's in that wheelchair. What's your wheelchair? What is that thing that you need to trust God through? That you're sitting, you're going to sit down in that chair and say, I'm willing, I wouldn't trade this hardness for anything because I, I can see what it's doing. I can see it's, it's, I'm trusting that it's going to bring me closer to Jesus. I wouldn't trade that. Can you say that? We're going to close with a song. We're going to sing words from this psalm. And I'm going to come and grab my, my guitar. You guys can stand. We're going to close. And the song is called Holy Spirit. And it says this. There's nothing worth more 
that will ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope, your presence. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone in your presence, Lord. When was the last time you, you tasted his goodness? When was the last time you experienced that goodness that is so overwhelming, abundant beyond measure, incomparable to any other goodness in this world? Don't miss that. Make time and space for it in your life. Let's sing.